Hi, I'm Emily Candela. I'm an artist and a design historian, and I'm fascinated by the ways that science meets art and design. On this series, I bring you stories from the long relationship between the arts and one particular science. X-ray crystallography, which is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. It's a science that reveals the invisible, the tiny structures of atoms in molecules and crystals. But what I share with you on this show isn't only the submicroscopic world of atoms, but the strange and subtle ways that this humble science has been leaving its mark on art and design for decades. Welcome to Atomic Radio, a project of the Science Museum Art Program. This week's theme, Atomic Fiction. For most of its life as a science, X-ray crystallography was a bit like groping around in the dark. Scientists couldn't see the structures of atoms they were after. They had to use cryptic data gathered from the submicroscopic world to imagine these invisible atomic structures. And they did so by building intricate models with bits of metal, wooden or rubber balls, and things like string and clothes pegs. This week, I'm wondering, are these models of the invisible structures of matter simply beautiful fictions? In this episode, we look in on the passionate embrace shared by the science of atoms and fiction. You'll hear my encounter with a model of the atomic structure of ice. And later in the show, I'll speak with the Science Museum curator, Boris Jardine, who recently curated an exhibition of crystallographers' models, as well as the designer and artist, Alexandra Daisy Ginsberg, whose work in the relatively new field of synthetic biology balances between science and fiction. Tessita Dean is an artist who's maybe best known for her works using analog film. They are reflective and often quiet, but they always seem, one way or another, to be telling a story. And one of them changed the way that I thought about the objects scientists have long used to visualize the molecules that make up the matter around and inside us, molecular models. Even if you're familiar with her artwork, you might not have seen a short film Dean made in 1997. It's called The Structure of Ice. I had heard that Tacita Dean had made a film about a molecular model. And so, being interested in molecular models, I went to her gallery in London one day to watch it. They set me up in the gallery office on a computer with headphones. I start the film, and what catches my attention are the love stories. They touch and turn and move by mutual collisions and blows. And as they move, they collide and become entangled. 
in such a way as to cling in close contact with one another. These stories aren't about people. They're about atoms. But the way Dean describes them, moving around, bonding to each other sort of erotically, and then repelling each other, it sounds to me more like the dynamics of our relationships. And so it is with the hooked atom. It becomes involved with another atom into whose shape the hook fits. And those concave atoms that do join with those that are convex have all come together intertwining and clinging to each other according to the congruity of their shape, size, position and arrangement. And then they stay together to become compound bodies until such time as some stronger necessity comes from the surrounding and shakes and scatters them apart. Their clingings together and breakups are a fictional atomic chronicle written by the artist. But it's based on early ideas about atoms, like the imaginative speculations of the ancient Greek philosopher Anaxagoras, who believed that all change in the universe could be explained by things coming together and things splitting apart. Watching the film, I think, it makes chemistry kind of romantic. But the actual object I see on the screen isn't. It's a ball and stick molecular model, the kind I remember from school that my eight-year-old brain never could connect to the thing it modeled, like water or graphite. This one is a model of the structure of atoms in ice. With fire as its father and soul as its mother, it will retain the qualities of both parents, mediating between them and reconciling their strife by virtue of its composition. I see the camera focus on a red ball in the model, frozen in place by a metal spoke. It's part of a motionless network of balls and sticks. It's so concrete and so far off from the passionate atoms in Dean's voiceover. It sounds weird, but I almost felt sorry for these objects. Models are an attempt to freeze in time and diagram something so ungraspable and animated as the world of atoms. And this can seem almost futile. But there is something different about this model, something I love. It makes a noise, this constant click, clack, click, clack. And you can hear it in the background of Tacita Dean's film. All along its spokes, this model is wound with electrical equipment, like an informant wearing a wire. And that's because some of its atoms aren't those wooden balls I'm used to seeing in molecular models. Instead, they're blinking light bulbs. And each time they switch on or off, they do it with this analog click. I discovered this model for myself once in the Science Museum archive, and I had never seen a molecular model with light bulbs in it before. It had been made half a century earlier for the scientist Kathleen Lonsdale, who was investigating the crystal structure of ice at its atomic level in the 1950s. At the time, she was one of the pioneers practicing what was back then the relatively new science of X-ray crystallography. 
I sometimes think of early crystallographers like Dr. Lonsdale as designers because they had to imagine and build actual things to represent a world that couldn't be seen at the time, not even with a microscope. I remember trying to understand this model when I was in the archive. The oxygen atoms in ice are represented in it by red wooden balls. Oxygen is usually assigned to the color red. And these should connect to hydrogen atoms, which are usually represented by white balls. But there are no white balls in sight. Lonsdale knew that the hydrogen atoms in ice can move. A hydrogen atom can be linked to its nearby oxygen atoms in more than one way. So those blinking lights in the model, those are the hydrogen atoms blinking in and out of alternative positions. And in Tacita Dean's film, which is shot in the dark, one second they're there when they're illuminated, and then they're not there. Then they're there again. Most models are so concrete and so certain, even if they're modeling the most elusive thing. But this one is an exception. It flickers. And when I was viewing the film, I realized that this model, and all crystallographers' models, are more like metaphors than straight copies of nature. 3D metaphors, designed for understanding fragments of information about the invisible. And just like Tacita Dean's atomic love stories, they are a kind of fiction. They have to be. I recently went to speak with Boris Jardine. He's a curator at the Science Museum who recently put on an exhibition of crystallography models. I was curious to hear what he had to say about these models and about their relationship to fiction. I'm at the Science Museum in London now with the curator Boris Jardine. Hi, Boris. Hello. Um, can you describe to me what you do here at the museum? Yes, so I'm a curator of early scientific instruments and I also have care of the art collection, so it's an unusual mix of things. Mm -hmm. um, and you recently curated an exhibition of X-ray crystallography models. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk a bit about why you chose to tell the story of X-ray crystallography through its models. So the Science Museum wanted to commemorate this, this centenary. Um, the techniques developed in 1913 by father and son team WH and WL Bragg. Um, and their work's very important, but it's very technical, and we've got some of the apparatus, but it's also elsewhere. X-ray crystallography really takes off, though, um, after the Second World War. And one of the ways it takes off is that the scientists doing the work develop um, techniques of modeling in order to present their results and in fact in order to do research um, and the Science Museum has a pretty extraordinary collection of models so to celebrate the centenary we thought that we'd commemorate as it were the golden age of crystallography and that is the age of modeling and most famously of course the, the discovery of the structure of DNA by Crick and Watson in 1953. Uh, what I find interesting about the models is not only one particular technique of making them um, it's actually the range of different kinds of solutions. So the modeling itself is really inherited from chemistry. I mean, everyone can 
visualize those ball and stick models. Um, and that's one technique that's used. But that gives you only a kind of approximation. It's very abstracted of the, the atomic structure. Um, and especially when it gets to making molecular models in the, in the 40s and 50s, you really want to represent these incredibly complicated shapes that are not, you know, the, the ball and spoke model might be a, tens of atoms, but then they're trying to work out larger structures that may be thousands. Um, Things like proteins. Yeah, exactly. So the first, the first um, completed uh, molecule is, uh, protein, sorry, is um, myoglobin, 1957. And that model uh, looks, well, it's been described as the turd of the century in a, in a, in a blog post about the <laughs> display. And it does look, it's pretty hideous. And people who saw it said it looks like an intestine or something. Yeah. It's really kind of grotesque. It's kind object. of an intestinal sort of tube. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> it's plasticine, is it? It's made out of plasticine. I mean, I, I kind of got excited because I thought maybe this is the, the oldest surviving plasticine model that, that we have, um, but I couldn't prove that. It's probably the one in someone's attic somewhere. Um, Kendrew, who made the myoglobin model, also, uh, the plasticine model, also made a thing which is called the Forest of Rods, which is, um, it's kind of hard to describe. The name does some of the work. It's a large base with, um, I guess, many hundreds of tall, thin metal rods, and strung about the rods are these clipped-on uh, lines, which are the polypeptide chain, um, and that's a, basically a larger, more more accurate model of, of myoglobin, and it just looks incredible. It looks like nothing else. I mean, the main point really is that you have a massive data set, and crystallography is a kind of science of big data, um, and what you want to conclude with is a three-dimensional object. So you have this big data set, you want a three-dimensional thing, um, and you have no idea what that three-dimensional thing will necessarily look like. It sounds a bit like a design problem in the sense that you are yeah, faced with sort of mm -hmm. developing a kind of material and visual language here. I was wondering if you see any connections with design in, in the process of modeling. Yeah, I certainly do. I mean, the, the question of how you convey a three-dimensional idea is common in at least molecular biology, but but certain, but in other sciences too, um, with in particular architecture would be a good example where you actually need to make a model. You can fly people through now. You can fly people through a computer demonstration, and of course you can you can do that now with molecular biology as well. But so, but in the fifties that wasn't wasn't possible. And then you get into two dimensional representation of three dimensions, and they try all sorts of techniques um, like stereographic mm -hmm. um, images, which are photographs taken from two different points and you use a viewer to reconcile them and they look 3D. That's not unlike modern 3D cinema. Um, and then they get into trying um, different kinds of shading. There's an artist called Irving Geis who basically sets the kind of standard for um, molecular representation to this, to this day. Um, but the models are the thing. How would you describe their method of doing this work of representation, do you think that they have anything in common with fiction? They certainly, they have a lot in common with fiction in the, in, in one sense, and that's that the, the early illustrators, I mean, the guy I mentioned who did a lot of the, the 2D um, work, Irving Geis, talked about adding fiction in order to convey, to convey truth. Um, and you, it's hard to remember now, I suppose, because we're so familiar with the double helix in particular, but that 
no one had a particular idea about how that would look. And there are lots of early representations, even of the double helix structure, that don't look like what we think a double helix should look like. So they're incredibly conventional. So there's a lot of a lot of invention in the models, but invention in the strong sense that they're really showing you that these molecular three-dimensional molecular visualizations are important. Maybe the two sides of crystallography, one the, the amazing legwork in just crunching the numbers and doing the observations and preparing the samples, which, you know, you think of uh, hemoglobin is a good example. That takes something like 20 years to solve. Wow. So that's the kind of, you just have to sit up all night. Um, this is obviously in the age when computers are new, they get used in crystallography, but it's still tough. And then you get this creative, perhaps you could say creative side where you build the models. My next guest is the designer and artist Alexandra Daisy Ginsberg. She works with synthetic biology on projects that merge science and fiction. Most recently, designing new organisms for the future. She's the lead author on a new book, Synthetic Aesthetics, published by the MIT Press. I invited her on the show to help us think about the role of fiction in science and how design fits into this. Hello, Daisy. Hi, Emily. Great to be here today. How do you see your role as a designer working in a field like synthetic biology? It's a good question. I think there's many different roles. I curate, I write, I make design fictions and everything in between. I think the interest in working with synthetic biologists is that they're proposing that they can design biology. So much of the question is then, you know, what do we design? And that's something that is sort of set in the future rather than now. That kind of leads me to a question, um, which I'm sure some people will be wondering, which is what exactly is synthetic biology and what how, how is what you do different from, say, what a scientist working in synthetic biology does? So I define synthetic biology as a new approach to genetic engineering. But my collaborator, Drew Endy, who's one of the sort of founding figures in the field, he's an engineer, he says it's a bit like pornography. You know it when you see it. That's his latest take on it. And I think that's really interesting because the field itself is changing. Originally, engineers came into biology or genetic engineering and said, well, you know, it's not really engineering. Can we make it more standardized and predictable and programmable, make it true engineering? And that's been a lot of the effort. But there's sort of a, a change, a shift that maybe actually biology has different tactics, like evolving and mutating. And so coming in as a designer, it's 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 working around those questions and saying, well, what, what do we design? Are there, are there tools we can bring from design as we know it, from architecture, from, from art, from sort of experimentation that could actually help reimagine the shape that that field takes? Why do we need designers like you working in science? Why can't science just proceed as it has for quite a long time being done by scientists? It's a really good question. I think many synthetic biologists or scientists might actually ask that as well. But I think it's a really fruitful collaboration that's happening. It's difficult, there's tensions, but there's a realization that synthetic biology in particular, as it is an emerging technology, wants to make stuff for people. And the question is, what stuff? At the moment, it's making the same stuff or it's trying to make the same stuff. So making yeast make jet fuel or make to redesign bacteria so that they make rubber to make tires. And my argument is that's what we already have. 
So to go about the biggest engineering project we've ever applied to nature yet, surely we could do something slightly differently. If the argument is that biology is sort of this ultimate sustainable renewable resource, then how could we use designers' skills in the human scale world to actually collaborate with scientists to think about it in a different way? So what, you know, what is the answer? What is better as a better future? Mm-hmm. Um, you used the word design fiction or the phrase design mm-hmm. fiction earlier. And I wanted to ask you a bit about how you feel about the word fiction and what you think it means. Is, is there a relationship between what is the relationship mm. between the kind of work you do as a designer and fiction however you're thinking about fiction so it, within my own projects um, a lot of them tend to be fictions they're often set in the future they're things that haven't happened yet the technology is not yet possible so a project i did last year was called designing for the sixth extinction and, and you know, today at the moment in the world we're undergoing the sixth great extinction period in biology so the dinosaurs dying was one of those events so i designed a series of organisms in a future so they're a fiction that use a lot of the language and attitudes that are in synthetic biology today so there was a slug, a bioremediating slug, that um, its sort of slime would be used to neutralise acidic soils. There was a, a kind of porcupine creature with rubbery spikes that would uh, collect seeds and other um, so like seeds from different trees that, uh, that are not being spread around by mammals, which have gone extinct. And so it would be used as a way of um, spreading and, and uh, tr- trampling seeds around so they'd uh, increase biodiversity. There was a a kind of fungus mushroom that would suddenly explode on trees when, which was suffering from the pathogen that causes sudden oak death. So if they detected that um, pathogen, it suddenly sort of erupt into this sort of bubble-like fungus and inject serum into the tree. That's all well and good, and it was represented in this big, beautiful, diverse forest. So we went off and found the most beautiful forest possible and used CGI to put these animals in. And you look at the forest and you don't see them at first. It just looks incredibly natural. And then you start to see little slug trails and the things popping up. And that was part of the fiction. But the other part was actually using the language of synthetic biology. So I described them only in terms of patent applications. So each animal was described as um, just in terms of the statement of invention and described as a machine. And that was proved quite complicated when I went back to re- to show it to the synthetic biology community. And the many scientists I spoke to said, well, why can't you do something really positive? Like, why are you being, you know, <laughs> I was like, well, this is the language that is being used. Kill switches, terminator genes, limited copies, safety mechanisms, machines. That's how we're describing biology now. And if that isn't the way that you want to be describing it, then we need to talk about it in a different way. Um, do you think that fiction is a part of the scientific process already, kind of inherently to any aspects of it? Or is that something that you bring mm. to to the collaborations, for instance, that you have with scientists? I think fiction is part of, I mean, it's part of the design process. So what we're doing isn't new. You know, architects have utopian dreams, and those are things that we use to shape society. Just as much as science is based on models, and those models themselves help, you know, simplify the world, make sense of the world and abstract it. And they are fictions, they're useful fictions. And I see what I do as trying to work out what useful fictions could be in terms of design. And that's in my own work, like my own design work rather than the curating. But I think that's a really powerful metaphor for the way that design can do more than just make stuff to consume in the way that we understand mm-hmm. it normally. But it's And that's, in a way, the overlap... Um, between between perhaps synthetic biology, because synthetic biology as a whole is a kind of fiction. 
It doesn't exist. It's a dream. It's a promise. And it's a story that's being told so that it makes it more likely that it will happen. And you're constantly anticipating futures in the work that you do as well, which is kind of mm. a kind of modeling. And I was wondering if you um, are there are there a few modeling tools that you rely mm. on? Apart from Google Docs, um, my <laughs> modeling tools. Uh, no, let me think. Um, so I'm always experimenting with different ways of working. And, and I think actually crashing real things together with fictions is a really effective way, as long as it's clearly signposted what's real and what's not, because it gets people to think about the same thing in, in from lots of different angles. And in my own work, I'm trying to work out yeah, what is the most effective, how close to reality should it look? Is there an aesthetic abstraction that needs to happen so that the shorthand of people knowing that it's not real is is quickly you know we can quickly move on from that so the suitcase of colored the briefcase of colored poo which is a project we did about five years ago called chromi um that i worked on with james king and the undergraduates at cambridge university for me was really important and problematic because the poos themselves they look really real and so people sort of the there's something interesting that happens with the initial shock of like oh there's colored poo now I'm desensitized to that technology. Like we've, the, the what you wanted to do has been achieved in a way, and and in a way I think we've actually affected sort of the imagination and synthetic biology amongst the community that we made as a reaction to what we saw as a disgust at biology from the very community trying to design biological systems. We were like, why are you representing it as like machines and cogs? It's you know the gut is a really interesting interface, and if that's not the interface that you're proud of. Then, um, the, you know, then you need to think about the technology differently, and in a way that everyone's like really wants coloured poo now, and um, that's really weird. The idea was that you could drink a yogurt that would contain engineered bacteria, detect, and they would detect diseases in your gut or the chemical signals, and if you had one, and start producing coloured pigment. And it's the, there's technological problems even in that system with like different colours, um, but the, even the idea that. You know, the gut is something that and the synthetic biologists will go to conferences and talk about and get DARPA grants for. Is is for me an example of a fiction and an aesthetic fiction, sort of affecting the science itself. So that's it for this week. We'd like to thank Tacita Dean and the Frith Street Gallery for letting us use clips of Dean's film, The Structure of Ice. Boris Jardine at the Science Museum, and Alexandra Daisy Ginsberg. Check out her new book, Synthetic Aesthetics, which is published by the MIT Press. You can find out more about it at daisyginsberg.com. And in the next show, we'll find out how shattering something beyond recognition can help to understand it with contributions from the artist and academic Lena Hakim on how the man who invented kindergarten is part of the story of crystallography, and my interview with the composer Margaret Chadal, who's transforming X-ray data into sound. So be here same time next week. Atomic Radio is part of the Resonance FM residency at the Science Museum, and it's supported by the Science Museum Art Program. This series is part of my PhD across the Royal College of Art and the Science Museum, which is supported by an Arts and Humanities Research Council Collaborative Doctoral Award. Thanks to my fabulous PhD supervisors, Sarah Teasley and Peter Morris. 
And special thanks to Hannah Redler. A version of my essay at the beginning of this show originally appeared in Tombolo, an online journal of design and culture. You can check it out at tombolo.eu with dashes in between all the letters in Tombolo. You can hear us again next week on Resonance FM, online at soundcloud.com slash atomic radio, and through a horn in the Science Museum made by the sound artist Alex Kolkowski. Atomic Radio is made by me, Emily Candela, and co-produced by Chris Dixon. Sound design and composition by Emmett Glynn and Sam Conran. Visit us at atomicradio.org with your comments and feedback, and we'll speak to you again next week. <laughs>